Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, today uh, the topics are the recent release a couple of days ago of uh, U.S. gross domestic product, GDP, measure of how the economy did last year, right? Fourth quarter band for the year, 2022, compared to the previous year. Uh, so we want to look at that. You know, a lot of hype going on. Uh, Biden saying, oh, the economy is doing so well. And uh, folks uh, in the bushes uh, know that's not so uh, accurate. Uh, doesn't feel so well. But that's what the politicians are saying. So let's look at the numbers and uh, make our own judgments here. Of course, they're all in agreement uh, uh, that it's going to uh, get less well here in the first half. Pretty much just uh, a question of uh, how deep the recession will go here. Will it be uh, a soft landing? Will it be a mild contraction? Will it be something more serious? Uh, they don't really know. Uh, but the general consensus is that it's not going to be better than the second half of last year, which wasn't so good. Uh, okay, so we want to talk about GDP the measure of the economy. GDP simply means the value of all the goods and services that were created and sold last year. And we'll break it down by uh, sector, because that's the, the way you find out what's really going on. Peel the onion, look under the covers, uh, analyze the details, and that's how you really see uh, uh, what the trend might be going forward. Okay, so we want to talk about that. Uh, I also want to talk about another report that came out last week, and that was the... Uh, What's happening to union members, the growth in uh, membership or lack thereof. Uh, so we want to, want to talk about that here. Let me get my... Uh, my facts and figures in front of me here. Okay, uh, and then I want to mention something about um, what's going on in the Supreme Court, that glorious institution. Uh, yeah, Supreme Court, uh, which is uh, becoming increasingly right-wing and uh, is considering a decision here called uh, Glacier Northwest versus the Teamsters. Uh, in which they're going to make it even harder for unions to strike. Oh, wow, gee, what a nice timing. Just before the big Teamster UPS decision, uh, negotiations come up in a, uh, this year, later this year. And uh, we saw how the government is really coming down on uh, unions and labor here in this uh, forced uh, settlement by the government, Biden and Pelosi uh, on the railroad workers here a few months ago, right? Well, not a few months, just last month, uh, how they uh, put the kibosh on them and uh, threatened and passed the anti-strike legislation, anti-bargaining legislation, really, in the railroad settlement. We did a, a whole show on that back, I think it was in November or December. So if you're interested in that analysis, uh, go uh, go back and listen to that show which is archived. 
Uh, and I'm sure we're going to have a show on the Teamsters here before the year's over. But in the meantime, uh, we got this data that came out that showed uh, union membership, long-term, decades-long decline continuing. Okay, so why is that? Why do we have... Uh, such a perpetual decline in union membership, down to only 6% of the total labor force, roughly on almost 160 million, only 6% in the private sector, belong to unions now. Never been that low. And seems to be going south. (laughs) Uh, The only thing that's holding up, of course, is uh, public employee unions. And we'll discuss why the public employee union uh, unionization rate is about 33%, while the private sector is only 6%. Uh, is it all labor's fault, union leaders' fault? Uh, how much of it is attributed to uh, government policies, including Democrat-supported policies? I'm going to say something, too, uh, if we have time, about the, the phony debt ceiling negotiations going on and what that represents. Uh, But let's start out the show uh, by uh, some simple, interesting statistics here. Let's talk about the oil companies. Yeah. (laughs) Remember the price gouging that went on last year? Hell, out here in California, at one point we paid $7 for a gallon of gasoline. Uh, that has abated a little bit, some, but uh, I predict it's going to go back up here in the spring. We're going to see another surge in gasoline prices. Uh, you know, every spring the uh, oil companies uh, say, oh, we got maintenance, or oh, we got a fire in this refinery or something, you know, and they jack up the prices because they haven't built a refinery in decades and they don't intend to. And so that's like a choke point. Whenever they want to pump up the price of gas, says, oh, you know, we got a refinery that goes down uh, for whatever reason. No one checks it, see if the reason's true. And uh, then that's an excuse to jack up prices. It always happens in the spring, you know. Always people are going to start driving again, so they jack up the prices. So we're going to have that normal price hike uh, that comes every spring. But on top of that, uh, we have two other forces that are driving the problem on the supply side. And that is uh, China opening up finally its economy after COVID, going to increase its demand for industrial commodities of all kinds, including oil and energy. That's going to cause uh, shortages. Uh, In the global supply, uh, the speculators, the financial speculators who buy oil futures on markets are going to jack up their prices, as they always do on the slightest uh, excuse. Uh, So global crude price is going to go up here in the spring due to China opening. And also a second supply issue here is going to be uh, we're going to see a real intensification of war in Ukraine, I predict, in a couple months. So it's going to make last year's uh, look like uh, last year's conflict in Ukraine going to look like a dress rehearsal. Um, Big problems coming there. And uh, the U.S., uh, which has already spent $111 billion last year in aid to Ukraine, 
is uh, allocated 45 billion more immediately for Ukraine in its uh, budget here, defense budget, Pentagon, not the defense, the Pentagon budget, which is just the subset partial of the total U.S. defense spending. You know, Pentagon uh, spending is projected to go uh, from 77 uh, billion to 858 billion in Biden's next budget, and that's not even. Uh, finished yet, uh, the House Republicans will add more to that. So it's like an $80 billion increase. $45 billion of that's earmarked for Ukraine. And the New York Times says that's only the beginning. By the end of the year, even more is going to go to Ukraine. So we'll see probably another 100 to $200 billion in aid in Ukraine, especially if the, uh, the offenses on both sides in Ukraine uh, materialize in another month or two, just about when the spring excuse of uh, raising gasoline taxes occurs. So we're going to see an increase here once again, at least a dollar a gallon or more uh, in the spring. So uh, who benefits from all this? Well, we certainly don't, but uh, the oil companies just uh, released some statistics that said their profits for last year, $200 billion, American oil companies, almost double what it was the year before, $200 billion. And in the same breath, they announced $75 billion of that is going to go back to their shareholders in the form of stock buybacks. And probably at least another $25 billion in dividend payout increases. Yeah, so $100 billion is going to go to the shareholders just from the big oil companies. There's only like four or five big ones, right? $200 billion in profit, at least $100 billion or more, shuffled right back to their shareholders, other big capitalists, right? Yeah. Uh, and what is uh, Biden doing about the gouging? Nothing. He did diddle. What did Congress do? They did diddle. You see, the oil companies are very clever. Whenever the heat gets a little high and they start having hearings in Congress, they lower the price temporarily. Then they jack it back up. And that's exactly what they're doing. So, speculators, price gouging, war in Ukraine, sanctions. China opening, all this is going to mean another surge in in oil prices. And since uh, energy prices and commodity prices are over half of the increase in uh, inflation in the U.S., uh, that's going to hit head on to, uh, uh, you know, the government and the Federal Reserve uh, efforts to bring down inflation. As I said many times. Uh, you know, the supply side problems, which are war and sanctions and supply chain problems and price gouging problems, uh, uh, that's over half of the inflation <clears throat> and inflation. The Fed can bring down inflation on the d- demand causes to some extent, and it is slowly bringing it down uh, from 9 percent, you know, the six and a half percent now. Uh, but they're never going to get it down below 4 percent. As long as these supply problems, global supply problems and price gouging uh, and energy and oil companies keep playing their games, uh, continue. And they will continue. So the Fed is going to slow down its interest rates increases. You know, next week it's going to raise it again, either a quarter or 50 basis points. 
And uh, then maybe one more time they'll raise it, certainly not more than a quarter, and then they're going to sit pat come March to see what is the effect of these hikes for a whole year, you know, about over 5% uh, in the benchmark federal funds uh, Fed rate. Uh, they're going to sit back for three or four months and see uh, uh, how much it slows down the economy. Uh, and uh, that's about the time that uh, oil prices are going to start rising again and gas prices rising again. So, uh, you know, if it doesn't really cause a deep recession by uh, second quarter of this year, well, then the Fed will resume rate hikes in the second half of the year and it will deepen the recession even more. Okay, so uh, uh, that's a scenario. We'll talk more about the Fed uh, increase in our next show next week, but that's coming, right? And uh, that whacks the demand side, which means more layoffs, uh, less wage income, and less spending. But, you know, I'm not sure how much uh, it's going to affect uh, wage income uh, spending because uh, if you look at what's going on now, uh, the spending – by consumers, is increasingly on credit cards. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a poll here reported on uh, Bloomberg News just uh, this past week, a couple of days ago, where uh, I forget the name of this, uh, this survey. Anyway, they legitimate enough to get uh, interviewed on Bloomberg News. And uh, the surveys had... Uh, that uh, 40% increase in credit card usage in the second half of last year, 40% increase. And dig this, one out of 10 households is now using their credit card to pay their rent and mortgage. One out of 10. You know, it's like 130 million households in this country, so 13 million people are using credit cards to pay their rent now because why well, rent is, you know, escalated, accelerated way above what people's income is, and they can't pay their rents. Well, but the government said rent increases are only, only went 4% last year. Everyone knows who, who's had a rent increase, and there's many. It's at least 20% or more. Oh, it's only 4%. You know, that's another area of government statistics are misrepresenting the reality out there. Increasing problem with government statistics, I think, in the post-COVID era. A lot of these statistics are based upon uh, methodologies that predated COVID, but the COVID impact on the economy has uh, really upset uh, a lot uh, in the structure of the economy, and I don't think that a lot of these government statistics, and we've talked about them, unemployment, and I'm not going to get to that today again, um, maybe talk a little bit about inflation statistics, uh, are um, not as reliable as they used to be, I don't think. Okay, uh, so uh, that's uh, my comment on the oil companies. Yeah, the SOBs, right? And no one does anything about it. Now, who's the big benefactors? This war in Ukraine. Well, it's the defense companies, but who's the biggest benefactor? It's the oil companies. What entity uses more, the most fossil fuels in the world? Who's the biggest buyer of fossil fuels? 
it's the U.S. military. They're the number one biggest purchaser of fossil fuels. So guess what? Yeah, <laughs> the oil companies are right up there benefiting tremendously uh, from uh, defense spending and war spending. Incredible. Uh, not just the uh, uh, weapons producers, you know, the Raytheons, the uh, Boeings, the BAE systems and over in UK, right? um, Lockheed and all those. Uh, not just those guys, but the oil companies too, and a lot of others. Yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, oil companies, $75 billion in buybacks. We're going to see uh, uh, buybacks, stock buybacks and dividend payouts well over a trillion dollars by the Fortune 500 companies in 2022. They will have given back to their shareholders, you know, the one-tenth of one percent or one-one-hundredth of one percent households. They would have given back over a trillion dollars in stock buybacks and dividend payouts. Which puts us right back where the first three years of the Trump administration, where Fortune 500 companies, buybacks, dividend payouts, averaged about $1.2 trillion a year, every year. Under Obama, they averaged about seven, $800 a year, rising from $400 billion in 2010. So it's just been going up and up and up and up. The big corporations are a conduit just uh, funneling wealth and income to their shareholders on an unprecedented, accelerating pace and scale. That's why you got all this income and wealth inequality. It's the corporate conduit and uh, the government policies which encourage and allow corporations to have even more disposable income to feed to their shareholders. Government policies, tax policies, Federal Reserve interest rate policies, all kind of policies, subsidies, right? Talking about subsidies, uh, what do you think this, uh, quote, semiconductor chip and manufacturing act passed by Biden, about a half a trillion dollars, is really about? Oh, it's a big slush fund. It's a big bribery for the chip companies to relocate back to the United States from Asia and to or other Asian companies, semiconductor companies back to the U.S. like TSMC from there in Taiwan, building a big plant in Arizona now. Yeah, it's a, it's a big uh, uh, bribery. Bring these companies back to the U.S. Uh, because if you're going to go to war with China by the end of the decade, well, you know, you don't want your strategic uh, products like semiconductors uh, right there on their border. You want to bring it back. And the U.S. is going around, uh, uh, you know, it's got the agreement of China, I mean, of Japan now and Taiwan. We're feeding $5 billion to Taiwan uh, and uh, we're, we're uh, getting Japan to follow our lead on cutting China off from tech, uh, uh New technology development, and chips in particular. And I just read that the U.S. got the uh, uh, Netherlands and uh, European countries uh, to go along and do the same. So the U.S. Is, is intensifying its economic war in China while it's uh, intensifying its uh, military war there in Ukraine. This is all part of the empire 
restoring its, trying to restore its hegemony as it's under increasing challenge. Uh, by uh, parts of the world want to go independent, particularly uh, from the empire, particularly China, uh, and also uh, Russia, and some others. Small fry, that is a small fry, you know. If you achieve it in Russia and uh, China, then the rest will fall in line. This is all part of the empire maintaining itself, and as it becomes under challenge, it becomes increasingly aggressive and violent. And that's why we got this hot war in Ukraine. We'll talk about the hot war in a next uh, show or two, reviewing and updating uh, my article in January uh, 2022 last year entitled uh, 10 Reasons Why the U.S. May Want Russia to Invade Ukraine. We're going to look at, uh, well, you know, what were those 10 reasons, what's happened over the past year, but that'll be in another show sometime in early February. Okay, to get back to GDP and our GDP uh, issue, 2022 GDP, and then I want to talk about union membership and uh, the Supreme Court's uh, pending anti-union decision here. Okay, so uh, what can we say about the figures that came out for GDP here? I think it was yesterday, the day before, uh, for 2022 and the fourth quarter. Of, uh, of last year. Um, now, this is uh, the first first view, as they call it, the advanced view of GDP for last year in the quarter. Uh, there are always three views that come out. Uh, the second view is usually the comes out about a month later, and it's usually the most accurate. And the third view that comes out a month after that is usually some tweaking. Uh, going on. Uh, so uh, the the second view, this is the advanced view. Uh, the second view will come out, I think, February 23rd to give us a better accurate look at what happened in 2022. And by then, we should be clearly into the recession here uh, in uh, the first half of uh, 23. But let's look at uh, the numbers. And here, once again, you know, you, you play with these numbers. you got to be careful about these government numbers, uh, you got to look at what they really represent and how they get to these numbers. Okay, uh, for last year, 2022, the GDP, real GDP, in other words, adjusted for inflation, not nominal, which includes price increases. You know, we always want to know what the real growth is in goods and services, not what, uh, you know, the price is charged uh, because they can be a significant inflation. Uh, so the numbers they report in GDP are always real GDPs adjusted for inflation. And the adjustment for inflation showed last year that the GDP grew by 2.1% over the entire year. In the fourth quarter, uh, the number was 2.9%. In the third quarter, of last year, it grew by 3.2%, so it's slowing down a little bit. Uh, after having contracted in the first and second quarter of last year, a mild contraction, which should have been considered a recession, but uh, in the U.S., uh, they don't use GDP as the definer of recession. 
they leave it up to a, a group of elite economists, well connected with business uh, and government guys, uh, who uh, declare whether we had a recession or not about a year after it all occurs. Um, so uh, they haven't declared a recession for the first quarter, of, I mean, first half of last year, uh, and they probably won't because uh, we get this growth here, uh, 2.9%, 3.2%, which averages out with the recession the first half of last year, averages out for 2.1% GDP for the year. Okay. Now, uh, two comments on that. Uh, before we look at the, the breakdown of it, right? Uh, you got to understand when I say adjusted for inflation, in other words, they first estimate or calculate, add up all of the goods and services produced and sold at a price, inflation, right, for the year. That's called nominal GDP. Right? And then they adjust that uh, by an inflation index to get the real GDP, to get that 2.1%. Now, you got to understand uh, there are price indexes and there are price indexes. Uh, we hear a lot about the consumer price index, which comes closest to real inflation. But that's not what they use to adjust nominal GDP to real GDP. They don't use the CPI. They don't even use the much more conservative Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, PCE Index. That's what, by the way, the Fed uses. It doesn't use CPI. It uses PCE, which always comes in lower than CPI inflation. But the government, when it adjusts, adjusts for inflation in its nominal GDP numbers, doesn't even use the PCE. It's got a third indicator called the GDP deflator which is even more conservative, i.e. underestimates real inflation. So now think about it. If you underestimate the inflation, you're going to overestimate real GDP growth. And that always occurs. In other words, the 2.1% growth last year is really less than 2.1% really less. If you use the CPE, Consumer Price Index, to adjust nominal GDP last year, instead of the very conservative GDP deflator index that is used, you would get no growth, virtually no growth in the second half, and even a worse contraction in the first half of last year. Well, how much? Well, if you look at gross domestic purchases for GDP last year in the U.S., right? Uh, and uh, even if you use the PCE, what do you get? Instead of the 2.1%, you get 1% growth last year, and it was less than half of what they reported, if you just don't use the super conservative GDP deflator, but use the CPI index deflator, you get 
a flat economy. Fourth quarter, 2021, to fourth quarter, 2022, there, even in the government statistics, there is a 1% growth in real GDP. In other words, the economy is flat. Now, that compares to a previous year, fourth quarter 2020 to fourth quarter 21, where the GDP grew 5.7% because the economy opened up. The economy in the first half of 2020 crashed big time. That's when COVID began and every other shutdowns occurred. Right? And then we had a, a, a weak uh, recovery in the second half of 2020, which really relapsed back in the fourth quarter of 2020 when we had another wave of COVID and some more shutdowns, right? The economy really did not start opening up until 2021, in the spring of 2021. And that's when we get the 5.7% GDP growth for 2021, measured quarter, fourth quarter to fourth quarter, 5.7%, which is really opening up the economy. You see, there wasn't really growth. It was partially recovering from the absolute contraction and collapse. So is that real growth? Well, they call it growing the economy. Uh, but, you know, GDP measures from the bottom, the trough, and when it stops collapsing, all right, they call that growth, even though you're just recovering what you lost. You're not really growing the economy more than where it was before the collapse. You're just recovering what you had, and even then only partially. So that recovery in 21 was 5.7%, followed by a 1% growth last year. And again, I'm measuring December to December, quarter to quarter, quarter to fourth quarter, which is really uh, a more accurate picture of where we are right now than averaging out all the four quarters for the year. Okay, so once again, worth repeating, 5.7% when the economy opened up in 21, followed by in 22, a 1% GDP growth. To me, that's a real slowdown. That means that the opening in 21 petered out, evaporated. We only get 1%. Now, the question is, think about this. This is the other major point I want to make, other than this question of, of what periods are you using and what inflation deflator are you using? The second point is, think about this. Think about the fact of how much fiscal and monetary stimulus was thrown at the economy in 2020 and 2021. How much? Well, Congress, conservatively, spent about $3 trillion. Actually, probably closer to four trillion. Let's, let's be conservative. Let's say three trillion in uh, spending. And we know all those different measures. I'm not going to go over them again. I talked about them. The government spending, you know, the special unemployment, extended unemployment, the checks that people got, the, the child care, uh, you know, rent assistance, and uh, uh, 
federal protection program, and so on and so forth, right? Three trillion at least. Now, and, and that hit the economy in, in about a year and a half. 2020, 2021, well, say two years, right? Now, on top of that, the Federal Reserve threw at corporations, businesses, another $4 trillion in free interest rate money. That's a monetary stimulus, $4 trillion in QE, as they call it, quantitative easing, right? Threw it out there. And on top of the $3 trillion. And then last year in 2022, Biden cut off the social spending programs, some of them early, and replace them with three bills, three acts, Congress, the Democrats, three acts. Right. And what were those? Uh, the infrastructure spending bill. I think it's like four or five hundred billion dollars, maybe a little bit more. Followed by the uh, chip uh, and manufacturing uh what Improvement Act? I don't know what the hell they called the whole thing, but uh, it's really a subsidy, slush fund, to buy companies to come back. Right? Uh, that was another two hundred eighty billion dollars, and then the so-called phony Inflation Reduction Act, which is really money thrown at businesses that were in the sector of alternative energy and the oil companies, because uh, Joe Manchin made sure that if you're going to give it alternative energy, you got to give it to his boys. All right, so that's that's an, an energy bill, really. It had nothing to do with inflation, uh, but uh, you know that was hundreds of billions of dollars more. Uh, those three bills uh, last year totaled one point two trillion dollars. Now consider this: one point two trillion on top of three trillion by Congress in twenty twenty one and social spending programs on top of four trillion by the Fed. Over eight trillion dollars was pumped into the economy. In 2020 and 2021, and what did we get for it? Uh, we got that 5.7 percent GDP in 2021, which is really due to opening, and we get a fading one percent last year, quarter to quarter, a fading one percent, or if you want to average it out and be very generous, a 2.1 percent for last year. From 5.9%, this is an annual average, not quarter to quarter. Annual average, 2021 GDP is 5.9%. Using the gross underestimated conservative index, inflation index called GDP deflator, 5.9% in 2021, followed by one-third of it, and that was a decrease of two-thirds of 2.1% last year. Now, those are annual averages over the whole year, 5.9, 2.1. But if you look quarter to quarter, fourth quarter to fourth quarter, it's 5.7 and only 1%. So if you want to, you know, get a better accurate trend, you look at the quarter to quarter, fourth quarter to fourth quarter for these two years. And if you want to be uh, uh, more conservative, you look at the annual average, and it's still down two-thirds from 5.9 to 2.1%, even after $8 trillion of stimulus. I mean, this is mind-boggling to me that they threw so much money and they got so little for it. 
this tells you that the fiscal monetary policy is not working. And you ought to be concerned that it will continue not working going forward. The question is, you know, why is it not working anymore? Well, I talked about that and wrote about that uh, in my last pieces. Uh, and you can read uh, this, I think, long-term trends in uh, fiscal monetary policy uh, in the global capitalist economy was one of one of the long-term trends. You know, the article I wrote, check it out on my blog, jacklasmus.com. Go to Counterpunch, right? Go to LA Progressive blogs. They all have it there. Uh, and read my analysis of these long-term trends, of which one key is fiscal monetary policy is increasingly inefficient. It's not working to stimulate the economy. It is working, by the way, as conduits to subsidize the incomes of the rich, of the corporations, and their corporations and the rich. Yeah, it's working primarily now to to subsidize uh, higher income groups rather than stabilize the economy. Stabilize meaning stimulating growth, real economic growth, or controlling inflation. It's not working. Well, this is a big contradiction of neoliberalism in the, the 21st century, I think. Anyway, I'm not going to go into that explanation. I'll talk more about next week, probably, when we talk about the Federal Reserve's latest increase, why monetary policy, interest rates, central bank interest rate policy, QE, are not working very well anymore. We'll take that up next week. Okay, so let's get back a little bit more into the uh, under the covers of GDP. What sectors are growing here? Uh, last year, fourth quarter, uh, and in particular, well, we'll look at fourth quarter as a latest indicator, but let's look at the, uh, the average for the year, right? Uh, GDP... Uh, uh, the first slice or peel of the onion of GDP to look at what's going on sector by sector uh, will give you four major regions. Right? Uh, one is uh, consumer spending, which is about at least two-thirds, maybe 70% of GDP of the economy in the U.S. Uh, another is business investment spending, somewhere between 10 15% of the economy. But very critical, carries more weight because it also uh, is the sector uh, that produces jobs and sustained income. Okay. Uh, thirdly, government spending, federal and then state and local. Because a lot of the federal spending goes to state and local governments when talk about the social program, spending for them to distribute. Uh, and, of course, the federal spending is either on social programs uh, versus defense, social programs, meaning education, stuff like that, uh, or defense, Pentagon, plus all the add-ons to the Pentagon spending that makes up true defense spending, you know, like money that goes to the Veterans Affairs, money that goes to the Energy Department, 
where the government's, uh, uh, the military's uh, fuel uh, costs are calculated, they're not in the Pentagon cost. Other areas like uh, CIA spending, Homeland Security spending, uh, and NSA spending, um, atomic energy where the nuclear weapons development spending occurs, uh, and then, of course, interest on the debt, and some other areas. So, you know, the real government spending is about $1.2 trillion out of a total government federal budget of one point seven. Two-thirds of all the federal spending is really war and defense. The Pentagon is a subset, a big one, $858 billion now of that $1.2 trillion. But, you know, the, we, we only spend about $500 billion a year uh, on uh, non-war discretionary spending. You know, there's other spending that's, non-discretionary like the Social Security and Medicare and so forth. That's not part of, of the budget. Uh, anyway, uh, two-thirds is war spending in this country. How long we can sustain that, I don't know. You know, the, the, the federal debt now is $31.5 trillion. 20 years ago, it was $4 trillion. It's up 31 and a half in 20 years. What the hell's going on? Well, I'll tell you. It's tax cuts for corporations and the rich, $15 trillion over the last two decades, and it's worth spending $7 trillion even before Ukraine. This $22 trillion of the $31.5 trillion in the government national debt right there. Okay. Back to uh, peeling the onion, what's going on. Uh, consumer spending. You know, increased last year. Yes, it did. Uh, not you know, big significant increase, but it did increase. But you know what? <laughs> 40% increase in credit card spending in the second half of last year. And as I said, one out of 10 people are using it to pay their rent and mortgage. That's unsustainable because the wage incomes really, wage increases really aren't sustainable. Uh Another element is a business investment. In other words, in, in new equipment and in structures, you know, building factories, uh, building uh, malls, building uh, office buildings, and so on and so forth. Well, the office building stuff isn't going on because more people are working from home. Some of these big cities have empty office buildings now. Malls aren't going on uh, because people are buying more and more online. The malls are going bankrupt. Uh, so that leaves you uh, resorts, uh, you know, and entertainment facilities. Well, big spending going on the football stadiums uh, and uh, commercial property, building factories, and so forth. Uh, well, you know, we have uh, non—that's called non-residential uh, fixed investment. Right. Uh, now, a lot of that increase last year were the oil companies, oil and energy companies, building more drilling and, and so forth. Uh, but the big investment increase last year is inventories. In other words, businesses building up 
uh, their stock of goods to be sold, an expectation that they will be sold, the expectation was there would be a, a, a big surge in uh, consumer spending in the fourth quarter in the holidays that did not occur because prices are rising and people are cutting back their, their purchases on, on big-ticket items. So the inventories contribution to GDP last year was significant, but they're bloated inventories now. And this year, uh, they're not going to add to inventories. They're going to work off those inventories. So that boost to GDP is disappearing. It was a big boost last year, inventory accumulation and uh, uh, non-residential investment by business, mostly oil companies. That was big, contributed to that whopping 2.1% GDP growth or 1% actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, consumer spending, as I said, uh, government spending. Well, that was mixed last year because government spending is both social program spending and defense. And we're seeing a shift going on there. As the government cut its social program spending, COVID relief, in some cases early, and it began shifting to war defense spending and those three bills to subsidize uh, business investment that I talked about, you know, Infrastructure Act, CHIP Act, Inflation Reduction Act. A big shift going on. Uh, in, so uh, in net, uh, the government spending increased a little bit last year. Uh, and there's this, uh, you know, relative... Uh, change going on in the composition of that government spending. Uh, state and local government spending uh, decreased as these programs began to disappear because the state government doesn't do defense spending, right? But they do do uh, social program support, safety net, etc., COVID relief. So uh, looking in general, last year we had some consumer spending uh, increasingly due to credit cards uh, we had some business investment increase, mostly due to inventory. Right? Uh, government, the fourth area, the third area, was kind of a modest increase, if that. And the fourth area is uh, trade, exports over imports. Right? If we import more than we export, <clears throat> import more, buy more goods, services from abroad, then we produce and sell abroad exports versus imports. Uh, If we do that, uh, then, you know, it's negative. If imports are greater than exports, it's negative. And we always run a negative. We buy more imports than we export, so that's a negative subtraction from GDP. And that was a subtraction last year. Uh, And it's going to continue as a negative. Uh, the, the real negatives, of course, are the ho- residential housing area last year, which collapsed spending by about 50% from historic highs. Uh, federal government spending, the COVID relief programs collapsed, right? And we got more uh, imports over exports because of the slowdown going on in the global economy. Uh, so it's not a robust picture going into 2023 as to 
where we're going to get the stimulus. Yeah, the government's going to spend more on war, but will they uh, contract domestic spending? Yes, probably. That's what's going on with behind the scenes of this phony debt debt ceiling stuff. That's really how much of austerity, i.e., contracting of uh, real stuff, real real spending, uh, social spending is going to go on. That's yet to be determined. We'll see. But I predict, uh, you know, uh, Biden's going to uh, agree uh, to raise Social Security age and cut other cuts in Social Security, and then he's going to brag. But I saved Social Security from these even even more draconian proposals by the Republicans. I, Republicans, I saved that he's going to save, and they're going to raise the age to 70. He's always been a proponent of raising it to 70 when he was in the Senate. He was for raising it, yeah, and cutting SSDI and raising the uh, deductible for Medicare. So, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's not a real defender of Social Security. And there's going to be a deal, and he's going to claim that he saved it, <laughs> you know. And that, what they do is they'll, they'll backload it. In other words, uh, the the increases, the cuts, the increases in retirement won't come until after uh, the 2024 election. So people won't feel the pain until the Democrats get the run again. Right. OK, so that's my analysis of uh, of this picture. Uh, let's uh, with the GDP, where it's last year, this year. Uh, let's go on to union membership in the time we have left. As I said at the beginning of the show. Private sector unionization only growing by 6%. What's going on here? Why? Uh, well, if you go back to 1980, there was about 22% of the workforce unionized. 22%. And that included just about 90% in the basic industries and manufacturing, steel, auto, meatpacking, et cetera, electrical, et cetera. That was like 90% unionization, 22% in 1980. The official records by the government start in 83, and uh, that had indicated about 20% unionization. It's down to 6%. It's been going that way every year. Why? Well, a big, big factor is uh, uh, offshoring of union jobs. You know, those industries, manufacturing, basic manufacturing, which were the, uh, the, the heart of the union and construction uh, of unionization, uh, have been decimated. They've, been, they've shipped them offshore. Yeah, shipped it offshore uh, with government subsidies. In other words, the government's given tax cuts. Reagan introduced tax cuts to ship offshore, to invest offshore. Yeah. And then you've got free trade, which occurred under, uh, really expanded under Clinton. And what was that about? That's so that the jobs that companies that went offshore could produce the goods and send them back to the U.S. without paying the tariff. That's what free trade is about. So it went hand in hand with the offshoring and the tax cuts, you see. Uh, that really decimated manufacturing. You know, as, as late as 2000, we had like, 18 and a half million people in manufacturing. Today, we barely have 10, I think, if that. 
you know, for, for just in the last 20 years, 8 million manufacturing jobs, which were highly unionization left. Okay, so that's one reason for decimating the unionization rate. Uh, Another reason is uh, changes in the composition of uh, the U.S. economy. As we started hiring more part-time and temp workers in the late 80s and 90s, uh, concession bargaining by the unions and government rules excluded part-time and temp workers. So the government... I mean, I mean, corporations got rid of, steadily got rid of full-time workers, replaced them with part-time and temp workers, or precariat workers, as we call it, and exempted them from union bargaining agreements. At the same time, all this was happening. Uh, the government also provided tax, tax cuts for corporations to replace labor with machines, equipment, capital equipment. That's the second big factor of decimating manufacturing. In the construction area, the construction employers broke up uh, regional uh, union, cross-union pattern uh, contracts and fragmented them and then set up other operations, other companies uh, for residential construction leaving just the inner city construction unionized. And uh, as you build houses in the suburbs, they were non-union. So uh, that's how they they, uh, decimated the construction unions, just as offshoring decimated the uh, manufacturing unions, goods production. Uh, On top of that, they spread what's called, legislation grew for what's called uh, right-to-work states. Uh, about two-thirds of the states now, I think, have laws that says that uh, even if the union uh, represents all the workers in the company comes in, uh, that uh, legally the union can't negotiate a requirement that they all pay, uh, they all join the union, or now even pay union dues. The court decisions are you know, the union can't even get them to pay union dues. Most of these right-to-work states, which is a phony phrase, it's really uh, an open shop. Uh, and an open shop means you don't have to join a union. Oh, by law, you're prohibited from the union forcing you to join, pay even pay your fair share for the services you get from the union. And the union has to represent everybody, whether they're a member or not, by law. Now, open shop, that's spread to two-thirds of the states now, and that reduces unionization rates. So that's a big factor. Uh, Services industries are hard uh, to unionize because they're so fragmented in smaller units. I mean, look at Starbucks and even Amazon. You can organize location by location, uh, but with uh, 25 workers, uh, try getting a contract at Starbucks, <laughs> unionizing just one of their one of their stores and locations, and, and even Amazon. Well, Amazon, Starbucks, you know, where the union, union workers had wanted to join and did join, did form a union, uh, they can't get contracts there because they just uh, have no leverage uh, to hurt the company. They would have to organize a. All of the warehouses, Amazon uh, Union uh, on the East Coast, to really have an impact on Amazon. And maybe they'll get there. Hopefully they will. Uh, but um, 
boy, it's tough to organize services nowadays. Okay. And then uh, what about Teamsters and trucking? Well, you know, the way they've avoided that unionization is they said that uh, uh, give a push to independent truckers and say, uh, well, they're business people. They're not union people. And you can't even unionize them, Teamsters. It's off limits by the national labor law. So you see, there's all these gimmicks that have been uh, applied uh, that have crushed membership in unions. The only place that hasn't crushed it is in the public sector because you can't offshore those jobs, right? And because public sector unions have a lot of uh, influence uh, over uh, legislatures uh, because they uh, provide a lot of money uh, for their reelections. See, so uh, that's why you got thirty-three percent public employee unionization rate and only six percent in the private sector. All these factors have come together, and on top of this, uh, the the main. Uh, means by which unions are able to improve wages and benefits conditions over non-union workers, which is bargaining and the right to strike, uh, that's attacked, being attacked as well. We saw that with the railroad workers. We're going to see it with the Teamsters this year. And coming behind it are the Supreme Court that is considering a case, as I said at the beginning, Glacier Northwest versus the Teamsters, Right? which as I understand it at this point, means that if you strike a company, uh, they can sue the union for damages. If you lose and don't win the strike, uh, well, uh, they'll sue and break your union, right? And the Supreme Court is going to give its, uh, its nod uh, to make that the law of the land, Right? In other words, the National Labor Relations Board will be totally bypassed and ineffective. Uh, this is a big, uh, a big destruction of what's left of uh, legal rights for unions and the right to strike. Yeah, that's coming. So, you know, Congress has already slapped uh, the railroad workers with anti. Union will take a union over if you strike. You see, if you have this anti-strike law at the national level and you strike anyway, uh, well, that's considered a felony, and that means that uh, the government can, or the employers, can go after and sue you, fire all your workers and sue you, and destroy your unions. Yes. Financially. Financially, right? Okay. Uh, well, that's as far as we've uh, going to go here today on union membership and uh, SCOTUS and uh, GDP. So, uh, uh, Federal Reserve, I'm out of here. <laughs>